Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Terry Toppler, and this is the 432nd show of ROI. Our guest for today's show is Dr. Brian Roberts, professor of history at the University of Northern Iowa, who's going to talk about American alchemy, the American gold rush, and middle class culture. The history buffs for today's shows show excuse me, are Brett Menard and Ed Broders. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zap Zapital. Our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. So to begin, welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you. We call this very first segment Farouk Dinarun, and our goal is to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. So can you start us off with some basic information on the American Gold Rush? Uh, sure. Uh, yeah, the California Gold Rush is... Um it's been considered by a lot of um, historians to be the major event um, in American history between, let's say, the uh, the Constitution or the early the period of the early Republic and the Civil War. So it's it's this major event, um, basically, where gold was discovered um, in California in 1848. Uh, amazingly, by an amazing coincidence, it happened right after the United States had taken this uh, territory from Mexico uh, in what many people see as a war of aggression with Mexico. Uh, essentially, the U.S. took uh, one, about one-third of uh, Mexico, the entire northern part of the country, uh, and then that was taken, and, and do, with the treaty ending the war with Mexico, this became um, kind of undefined public land and the new western frontier that stretched all the way to the Pacific. So in 1848, right as this war um, was ending, gold was discovered um, by um, a worker with John Sutter's Fort at Sutter's Fort. And uh, so this then started a kind of rush in California. And then um, James Polk, the U.S. president, announced that the gold discoveries in California were immense. And so that kicked off this massive uh, migration um, of people to California from all over the world. And so it's, uh, it became um, one of the greatest voluntary migrations of people in world history. Uh, so I think uh, in, uh, in 1849, something like... Um, 80,000 people just from the United States went, uh, but people went from everywhere, um, all over the all over the globe. They went from Mexico, of course. Uh, there were people from France who went, Australians, this kind of thing, and they were able to um, find quite a bit of gold. But what made the gold rush really a big event was it became kind of the first great media event. Uh, in American history where you have the development of the steam press at the same time. And so just immediately uh, there were just um, uh, a kind of tremendous number of publications about the gold rush by the people who went and then by their observers. So uh, it continued to kind of resonate in American history all the way through um, to the present, where we have, uh, as everyone knows, you have football teams named after the uh, main miners, the 49ers. 
Um, and then you have all of these kind of references to the gold rush continuing in American culture and society. Brian, I thoroughly enjoyed your book. Um, and the title begins with American Alchemy. Can you tell me where does this title come from and what, where does the metaphor of the magician come from? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I struggle with titles. I, I came up with the title, I think, um, after I'd finished the book. And so there were a lot of uh, kind of ch- uh, just failures uh, coming up with titles. Uh, I decided on American Alchemy because I really saw the gold rush as this kind of transformative event in the lives of the people I focused on, which um, they were Northeasterners, so people from New England and the kind of satellite areas to New England, upper New York, this area. And so for young men uh, who went to California, it was uh, it was this event that essentially kind of transformed them from middle class individuals to um, individuals who were always still middle class, but able to have this kind of physical quality to them. And I argue it kind of made the middle class as uh, kind of simultaneously respectable, but also uh, they were able to kind of make their way in a very competitive market economy that was emerging at that point. And then I also focus on their their wives and loved ones back in the East. So for them, too, for women, it was a major transformative event that um, they had to take over businesses while they're their husbands and loved ones were away. And so for many women, it it was this moment where they discovered that they could uh, really kind of make their way in a world of trade and and exchange, this kind of thing. So a lot of women came out of it. Uh, They didn't go the gold rush necessarily. They didn't go to California, but they had an experience that transformed them. And so I say this is kind of alchemic in its transformation. It, it made them into kind of different people. Yes, I particularly enjoyed the chapter about women and their letters and how they were, yes, in many ways, a part of the gold rush. So, yeah, not only that, I mean, I argue that the uh, if you really measure the gold rush by material standards, a lot of the women who stayed at home had a, were much more successful than their husbands were at finding gold. <laughs> we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello, and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, 
what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world. My name is Terry Toppler, and this is the second segment of the show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Brian Roberts, professor of history at the University of Northern Iowa, and we're talking about American alchemy, the American gold rush, and middle-class culture. Our history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Ed Broders. Brett, as resident historian, why don't you start us off? Okay. Uh, Brian, earlier you talked to us, uh, right before the break, you said um, that the women who stayed home were more successful than the husbands uh, who went to the mine. So who ended up coming out on top financially in the gold rush? Uh, Well, I mean, I think it, um, I'm really talking about kind of middle class individuals who went, um, who joined the gold rush. Um, And actually, part of what I'm saying is, um, uh, I found this in my research that it was, you know, a lot of the people who went who depicted themselves as working class were really middle class. uh, And people really forget how much it costs to get to California. I mean, it was the equivalent of climbing Mount Everest today, it would be about a year's wages for the average American. Uh, So um, those are the people I'm talking about. And with middle-class culture, uh, you know, before I think the rise of middle-class culture, which was really getting going in the uh, middle of the 19th century, um, I think it was a very patriarchal society. Um, You go back to earlier, uh, an earlier society, I mean, they didn't even list women in public records and this kind of thing. And after the gold rush, I would say it's a more equitable society. So I think women women were recognized for what they accomplished by taking over their husband's businesses while they were away, this kind of thing. But they, I don't think they came out on top. Uh, I don't think they were given quite the credit they deserved, in part because the woman's place in the gold rush ended up being this kind of mythical image of the woman as redeemer for their men. You know, the men fell into this kind of culture, this bachelor culture. And so uh, the focus was much more on the women who went to California than who stayed behind and who uh, were very successful. So I think the men were still still pretty much dominant in the culture. Ed? Yeah, um Brian, um, I've the, the, my knowledge of the gold rush um, is limited, but what I have read, and I have my perception that far more people didn't find gold than did. So, um, what about the who exactly made it into the middle class in California? Uh, well, most of these people were middle class before going to California, and um, so they they had enough money to invest in this trip to California. And uh, the the people I look at, I I can't think of anyone who made money um, by getting gold, and that's that's really I think typical of the gold rush. There were a lot of stories about people striking it rich. Um, by finding gold nuggets, uh, but really, and, and there was a lot of gold that was found in California, but it ended up being found by these large-scale um, ventures, uh, not by individuals so much. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I don't. It, it's pretty rare to strike it rich 
with um, gold in California, but a lot of people made money on the miners. So what you would do, if you really wanted to make money, you would open up a shop and sell um, sell these commodities that the miners wanted. And so the price, they always complained about the prices for everything in California being exorbitant, and that's true. A lot of merchants made a lot of money in California, and I think that's where the money was um, pretty much from the beginning of the gold rush. And one would have probably had to have been middle class to even start a business. Is that uh, is that a fair statement? Yeah, yeah, that would be. I think that's true. I mean, you know, a lot of um, a lot of the businesses were started on credit, so this was basically the. Um, Gold rush comes kind of it came at the at the end of the tail end or more or less the end of the kind of transformation called the market revolution to kind of modern modern capitalist society and so credit was really getting was going by this time so they were able to get credit but you know of course they had to um, they had to meet their criteria for getting credit and so these guys had to have some they they were pretty successful successful enough to to pay the money for the voyage out and then a lot of them invested once they were there and um uh in going into business brian you talk about the importance of gender in the gold rush experience can you talk a little bit how women's letters diaries and journals were different from the men's uh yeah the men's diaries um a lot of Historians have kind of looked at them, and they they fit into kind of the model of travel narratives. And then, um, as the story became kind of more and more uh, kind of ritualized, their their story was about kind of going to California, failing while digging for gold, and having but having this great experience. For the women um, who were writing. There aren't as many women's diaries, interestingly enough, but there are a lot of women's letters, and their letters tended to focus on family issues. Um, one of the things that I think marks these people as middle class is when a lot of the men left, they they didn't leave their businesses. They would have businesses back in the East, and they didn't leave them with their employees because they didn't trust their employees. They They trusted their wives. And so the women's um, experience in the rush when they wrote about it was a lot about doing business. Um, they had to borrow money to make sure the business, uh, they could stay in business, and then they had to de- delay creditors. Uh, and then another theme in, the, in women's writing is just loneliness. They were extremely lonely. I mean, they didn't have this, this kind of exciting experience that the men had. So it's a very different style of writing, um, and I think there's only one I can think of where there's one diary um, that to me is one of the most remarkable documents in the rush where um, the the diary had alternate entries by the husband and the wife, and that was up to the time uh, he left for California, and then she eventually joined him. So that diary is kind of a, can be read as a really nice conversation between the two. Brett. So the title of your book is The American Gold Rush and Middle Class Culture. What are some ways that the men who made the journey tried to keep a middle class existence in the middle of 
um, a a very rough uh, frontier uh, setup. Uh, mostly, I mean, the the middle class kind of that's that's really my main argument with really their attempt to um, kind of forge a middle class identity in this world of California. And um, the, the way they did it is basically uh, they wanted to, they had the same problem in California that they had in the East, which is middle class standards uh, for status are, they were all about respectability, uh, honesty, um, they stressed the golden rule. And so there's this kind of middle class ideology of, of repression and self-control that was the key to kind of having status as the middle class. So the middle class in America has been studied as an economic phenomenon, but it's, it's more a cultural phenomenon. You don't have to be rich to be middle class, but you had to be respectable. The problem with respectability was it was a real problem when you wanted to get out there and compete in a world of kind of capitalist exchange where you had to do some, maybe some dirty deals. And so that was the, that was really part of the tension, I think, that drove these people to California was kind of escaping this. Once they were out in California, uh, their way of kind of maintaining their middle class status was through a gender system where the idea was that men occupied this world of visceral competition and there they could do pretty much anything and still maintain status as long as they had a proper woman to continuously elevate them uh, in terms of their status. So that's why I think the, the kind of work of women in men's absence en ended up getting kind of covered over in the narrative of the rush. And then the big story came with um, the kind of 49er embrace of this idea. It was Eliza Farnham, this female reformer, came up with this idea of having a ship a trip out to California with a ship full of woman, women who would be their, uh, the wives to 49ers and kind of elevate them back into middle-class status. That trip completely failed, but it ended up, ended up becoming a very important um, kind of mythological creation of, of this middle-class that was able to simultaneously be respectable but also able to kind of make their way and, and achieve success in a world of competition. Ed. Yeah, um, Brian, you mentioned that the women who stayed behind um, ran the businesses and were more successful than the men. Why do you, uh, why do you suppose that was that way? Um, I think the, the main reason it worked out that way was because um, – Prior to leaving, I think this was a kind of phenomenon of gold fever where, um, you know, before these men left, they were, they were pretty much 100% confident based on kind of the images they had of California that they were going to strike it rich. And so, like, as one 49er said, you know, $100,000 was certain. It was absolutely certain he was going to make this kind of money. So... No matter how they did, they were kind of setting themselves up for failure. They didn't make anywhere near that kind of money. If they were lucky, they might have made $500, which wasn't that much more than they invested to get there. So part of the failure was just kind of they didn't meet any expectations that they had set for themselves. 
And then part of it was just how um, how good it turned out women were at running businesses in the men's absence. I mean, this is something that um, I think I, I try to make this point in the in the book that you know a patriarchal system works when men are present. When you take men out of the picture, all the things that women were doing to maintain the family suddenly became very visible. And so that was partly it wasn't like women were doing anything abnormal it was they were doing the same things they were doing before it was just that it suddenly became visible once these men took off for california and they were gone usually for about two to three years i love that (laughs) and it seems all the more remarkable given that a lot of these women um in a patriarchal society in terms of running a business were probably kind of being thrown in off the deep end yeah, I would say um, a lot of what they did with the uh, the businesses, especially when when dealing with employees. I mean, I have a, a few women that I looked at very, uh, you know, with a lot of detail. Uh, one uh, whose husband was a blacksmith, and the other one was uh, uh, her husband ran a nursery. Um, and so, in both cases, they the in the blacksmith case. She had to rent out a shop to other um, other artisans. In the nursery case, she had to deal with employees. Now, those were new tasks for women. What women had done mostly before that was they did a lot of, um, they had kind of worked to create kinship uh, networks that were kind of safety nets for the e- economic safety nets for families. Uh, but they didn't have to deal directly with employees hiring firing and and paying people and so it wasn't it wasn't a major stretch for them to deal with it um so it wasn't they they weren't thrown into the into the deep end where they couldn't swim I mean, they had done this before um they had done something like this but they they got to do things that were uh, in in those days would have been much more kind of male activities in terms of running the business Brian, in your book, um, you write that many of the 49ers led complicated lives during a, a period of great change. Can you tell me a little bit more about what those great changes were that they experienced as children of the 1820s and later as young adults? Uh, yeah, the, the biggest changes, um, I mean, this is all kind of related. The, the book is kind of placed into, or the gold rush, I'd place it into the context of the uh, market revolution in the East. And, you know, the, the changes had to do with uh, kind of widening the scale of the economy. Uh, the, I think the big events um, that kind of marked the beginning of the market revolution were the, you know, the building of the Erie Canal between 1817 and 18, uh, it was opened in, a, in the early 1820s. Uh, and then this expansion of kind of networks of trade on a national scale and the kind of development of a market economy. Um, up until that time, kind of trade was fairly local. And with this, what you end up getting is the, it's really the kind of the point where you see the development of white-collar work. And so for these individuals in the gold rush, their parents had usually been artisans, this kind of thing. Um, and then my, most of the gold rushers that I looked at were would have been white-collar workers. And that's a kind of new job um, that hadn't really existed 
uh, so much before that. And there's also a lot of changes in terms of literacy, the development of steam press. Um, this is why the gold rush became, I think, America's biggest event during this period was just the explosion of writing about the gold rush, but also uh, by the people involved. Uh, this is a very, this was a very literate event. And so you get, uh, coming out of the gold rush, I mean, you get some of them, some very famous people in American letters like Mark Twain and uh, Bret Hart. Um, and so it's a, it's a transformative event in terms of culture and econo uh, economy. Uh, it's also, uh, you have major tensions developing about the time of the gold rush, especially with the issue of slavery. Um, people know generally about the 1850 compromise. Well, that compromise was necessitated by the fact of the United States taking this territory from Mexico, which reopened the whole question, um, what, what's going to happen with this country? What's going to happen with territorial expansion? Are these uh, territories or new states going to come in as slave or free? And so there's a lot going on um, during this period when these guys are, um, during uh, the period of the gold rush. Brett. When we look at how women were able to be um, such successful uh, managers of businesses, is there something in the background of running a middle-class household at this uh, time uh, that would have prepared them for that? Were there skills they had that they could transfer? Um, I'm not sure. I, I would say um, the, the skills they had that transferred the best would, were not skills necessarily associated with the middle class. Um, one of the, the interesting thing about, I think, middle class um, women at this time, the assumption by a lot of scholars uh, and especially students is this idea that, you know, with middle class domesticity, this is where you get this kind of ideology of domesticity and woman in the home. And so a lot of people take this very seriously and assume that middle class women were not, they didn't work, they had, they had servants do their work for them. And when you actually do the research, you find out that that's not really true, that um, you look at middle class women at this time, and they were doing the same work that women would have done a generation earlier. Like I say, the most important role that women had in the home um, was maintaining kinship relations. And in a kind of, once you tr transition to a kind of market economy, you're also transitioning to a very uh, unstable economy and an unstable life. So if these guys lost their jobs, if they lost their um, means of uh, support for themselves, uh, they would fall, their fallback position before you had any kind of unemployment or any kind of social wel welfare system, the fallback was kinship networks. And so you would call on family members from your community, uh, also friends, neighbors, this kind of thing, to gather together and help you get by tough times. Well, those no networks had been maintained by women going all the way back to the colonial period and even before that in Europe. This is a, a part of women's work 
that any woman would tell you is very difficult. You have to deal with a lot of people to maintain these relationships. And um, it's, it's been a kind of work, I think, traditionally in, in history that's, that has not been seen. And it's been studied by historians, but probably not as much as it, as it needs to be. So I would say um, I don't really think there's much in middle-class ideology that prepared women for this. They had been prepared for this. Uh, what I think is interesting is that this kind of work, once you get to this ideology of domesticity, it, there would really be this tendency to deny that women were doing any work in the house. Everything was just kind of be getting done magically. <laughs> because they did it so well, yes. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yes. The better they did it, yeah, that's the thing about women's work, I think. The, the better it's done, the less it's noticed. Exactly. Ed, do you have a question? Yes. Um, you mentioned, Brian, earlier in the show that um, the middle class in the time period in the mid-19th mid century, that middle class was less determined by one's economic status, um, but rather it was a matter of personal integrity, honesty, ethical, ethical behavior, and, respect, and, and acquiring respectability through those things. Um, today, we think when, I, when we read about middle class or people talk about the middle class, it's almost exclusively in terms of um, economic status. And so um, was that the inevitable result of just the, the uh, culture in America becoming more economically oriented or... Um, What's going on there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, when the the idea of the middle class, I mean, first of all, the middle class as a kind of idea uh, when when Marx starts kind of talking about class as this kind of major determinant of society, I uh, you know he would deny that there's a there's an actual middle class, a middling position, and so um, you know. Before there was a middle class, there was a kind of middling sort in America, and they would be um, generally artisans, people becoming managers, this kind of thing. Uh, and so their middle class was uh, pretty much defined, I would say, mostly by the, an idea of independence. So middle class individuals were people who were indep economically independent. So it was, did have a kind of economic meaning to it. Then as you go into the 19th century, around the 1830s, 1840s, when I'm uh, dealing with the middle class, uh, it's, it becomes much more of a kind of cultural definition. And the idea is kind of, it's, it was very inclusive um, in terms of you could get in simply by acquiring the manners and the respectability of the middle class. And it didn't cost a lot. Um, you just kind of got an etiquette guide learn the kind of to behave as a middle class individual and it would be a kind of broad category it still did have economic uh, necessities that marked middle class status uh, you would have to have a, a, a job that didn't require you to get too dirty this kind of thing and then i think as you go through um, the 19th century you see the middle class becoming more and more i think um, defined economically and I think where it becomes a very kind of 
strictly economic definition is by the mid-20th century when um, major unions in America were kind of really fighting for this kind of middle-class wage. And there was talk in the mid-19th or mid-20th century uh, that uh, the middle class was going to, basically workers in America were becoming middle class and the working class in America was uh, kind of disappearing. Uh, what people forgot about that was that, you know, that wasn't going to last. And so you have kind of now, I think, left or middle class is now pretty much defined. There still is a kind of cultural definition, but there's, a, there's a definitely a, an economic necessity to middle class status. Um, and then we define it primarily probably today, I would say, as a suburban type existence. So um, I'm not sure if that answers what you're saying, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit of both uh, economic and and cultural um, definition even today. Well, it is customary that we give our guests the last word on our show. So Brian, why do you think knowing about the American gold rush and its links to middle class culture is relevant in today's world? Uh well, you know, I, I published this book in 2000. Um, I think I, I, I was pretty sure the book or that this concept was very relevant at the time. I think it's I get I think it's still relevant. Um, you know, the idea there is that what you have with the middle class uh, is this kind of class that's able to uh, kind of colonize experiences of others um, in a way that makes it very powerful still in American culture. Uh, the other thing is middle class ends up being kind of codified in this time period as kind of the key to whiteness in America. Uh, we're still struggling with issues of race in America. And I, I think um, as we kind of get to a point where we can kind of challenge this idea, the identity of the middle class, and look at kind of the ways that um, middle class is based on kind of consuming the experience of others largely. Uh, I think we're starting to kind of get past these kind of class distinctions, or at least some of the, we're starting to kind of challenge some of that power of the middle class to kind of dominate American culture. Thank you. So when we come back, we're going to wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 432nd show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. 
Our program manager is Rick Sweet, and the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapp Zapital. My name is Terry Toppler, and we would like to thank our guest, Dr. Brian Roberts, professor of history at the University of Northern Iowa, who talked with us about American alchemy, the American gold rush, and middle-class culture. The history buffs for today's show were Brett Menard and Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. So we would like to wish all listeners to experience the great Basoto proverb, Katso Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. <laughs>